Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Money is a pretty fundamental pillar of overall well-being. It's cited by many people as the number one source of stress. There's a large number of people who feel that they're not able to cover even their monthly expenses, right? And an even higher percentage of people who feel they might not be able to cover emergencies if they arise. So it cuts straight to this survival stress, as we call it. And how can that not affect mental health? Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that explores the mind, soul, science and health as we speak with world-leading experts each week. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur and happiness researcher. Life is not straightforward, so join me as we navigate being human together and become what I like to call flexible thinkers. I believe that curiosity and education is the route for more happiness, love, connectedness, and the doorway to unlocking your unlimited potential. I hope you join me on the journey. God, I am so excited about today's podcast. It's a topic I feel so conflicted about, and I think I know why I do, and yet it seems so hard to move past it. And I'm sure I'm not alone in these feelings. The topic of today's show is the psychology of money. The subject of money and how it makes us feel is one we so often avoid, but let's change that this year. And my guest to help us do so is the wonderful Kelly Hearn. She is a world-leading psychotherapist and a coach who takes an intricative approach to her work. For two decades, she worked in investment management and then switched gears into the world of therapy on a mission to empower people with many different tools from a variation of disciplines. She has a brilliant online workshop called Mental Wealth, the Psychology of Money and Pursuit of Financial Wellness, and I can't wait to dive into that. We're going to explore what makes our relationship with money so challenging and how we might make this relationship more harmonious. What is a favorite quote you like to return to often and why? Well, I do love me a quote and my diary is peppered with them always. But when it comes to the topic of money and financial wellness, I love to keep in mind the words of Theodora Roosevelt, who said, comparison is the thief of joy. And it's so true when it comes to thinking about our our financial situation. We inevitably compare to people who we think have it better than us. And almost by definition, then we're left feeling less than or inadequate. And it really robs us of the opportunity to just stay in our own lane and create our own joy. We've definitely had some truth in that, comparing ourselves to another's bank balance. Well, there's that whole quote, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, right? We're familiar with that. And then social media and reality television have just supercharged that. It's no longer just keeping up with the Joneses, it's keeping up with the Kardashians. And then we're on this treadmill, right? Where does it end? Unless you're Elon Musk, there's always someone with more than you. So another reason to just get off the treadmill and keep focusing on on doing your own thing. 
do you think the comparison has got worse based on the fact that we are forming our identity on consumption these days more than in the past we formed our identities perhaps on the communities we were in or family or I think there has been a trend as a culture right throughout the 80s 90s and into 2000 with the whole greed is good Gordon Gecko we did kind of focus on consumption and materialism more than perhaps in the past and I just think like I said since the advent and pervasiveness of, of social media, it just becomes so easy, right? The comparison, we don't, we don't even have to go out of our house. We can compare at the, the click of a, a button and we keep scrolling. So I think that has made it just so easy and so prevalent. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? Well, I go back to this one daily, just the, the truth that thoughts are just thoughts. We all believe them entirely too readily. We think they're the irrefutable truth. And this can be a problem because they naturally skew to the negative, the negativity bias. So we can end up in catastrophic thinking or inner critic gone wild. And, and all of this just causes a lot more mental distress. And so if we can remind ourselves that thoughts are indeed just thoughts, these stories that our brain comes up with to help us make sense of what's going on in the world, then we just might be open to questioning them a bit or investigating them or discarding them outright um, as, as things that are doing us some damage. Really like that. Always need a daily reminder, potentially an hourly or even a minute reminder about that. You and me both. You and me both. <laughs> How do you understand the concept of soul? So soul for me is the spiritual self. It's the essential self unique essence of the individual. So it's a word that's frustratingly difficult to define, but so important to keep in mind. And, and I'm particularly happy that you're bringing it up at the beginning of a conversation about money, because I think most of us, when we talk about money, we think we're exclusively in the material world and that it needs to be devoid of anything greater purpose or, or meaning um, or anything related to the spiritual realm. And and I don't think it needs to be that way. In fact, I think a, a healthy relationship with money is when we're, we're engaged in the earning of it and the spending of it in a way that's, that's aligned with our soul nature. Yes, that's really interesting because immediately that arises those, I guess, such extreme thoughts that like, you know, money is soulless or you uh -huh. know, if you like money, then it suggests that you have no integrity about you. And Absolutely. so obviously binary is what's keeping us stuck. Well, and I call it the money split, right? Either we need to be in pursuit of money and somewhat almost money worshiping because we're, we're, we need ever more and we're thinking it's going to provide all of our needs for us, or we can go the other direction and be money avoidant. And, and neither position is particularly helpful. What, what we're trying to do is get to a middle way. We need to live in the material world. We're here based in London. We need to go about our, our lives and pay for things. That doesn't mean that there's not a spiritual side to us. And we want to keep that spiritual side in mind too. And if we're too in the spiritual realm, then maybe we're not providing for ourselves, taking care of ourselves to go on about our lives in the material world. So how do we integrate the two and, um, and not migrate to one of these whole positions? I think that's so interesting, your choice of words. You know, the idea of avoiding money on the one hand and yet on the other hand, it like codependent with money. It feels mm. a lot like a relationship. 
Well, as a culture, we have this kind of conflicted relationship with money, right? On the one hand, we say it makes the world go round. On the other hand, it's the root of all evil. And again, it just sets up that slit. And how do we avoid that trap of going to one direction or the other and, and try to keep honing in on this middle way? So what brought you to really focusing on feeling that you needed to start healing people's relationship with money? Why does it affect us in a way that can be so harmful? Well, I can approach that a couple of different ways. The, the first is the personal, which, as, as you mentioned, I started my career in financial services, roughly two decades there. And in that world, as you might imagine, the language of money is everywhere, right? Plenty of focus on how much is a company going to earn, how much is the company worth, enormous attention to money and how much we're making for ourselves and for clients, but little to, you know, at the time, not a lot of consideration for these broader definitions of value, and then when I switched into the world of psychotherapy and was retraining, there was enormous attention given to these bigger definitions of value, meaning, and purpose, but little to no attention to money itself. And as you said, sometimes if, if we were even asking questions about money, it was seen as, well, maybe your motivations aren't in the right place. Maybe you're doing this for the wrong reasons. And, and it just struck me that, that that was an unnecessary split. So I became quite interested in integrating these two worlds. But in general, why do I focus on money? It's because it's, it's a pretty fundamental pillar of overall well-being. It's cited by many people as the number one source of stress. And so it cuts right to survival stress, right? There's a large number of people who feel that they're not able to cover even their monthly expenses, right? And an even higher percentage of people who feel they might not be able to cover emergencies if, if they arise. So it cuts straight to this survival stress, as we call it. And how can that not affect mental health? Gosh, and it couldn't feel more relevant now, I guess, with all the different global trends that are happening, whether that be hikes in energy prices, there's this kind of underlying fear that we're being constantly reminded of in the media about this sure. pressure to finances. But what are the factors that influence our relationship with money? Let me start with the psychological, because money is as much about psychology as it is economics. And so it dates back to our earliest conditioning around it, the messaging that we picked up um, both explicitly and implicitly growing up. And so I like to start working with clients and ask, you know, what was your, your first memory of money? And, and maybe we, we talk about that a little bit or we journal on it. And then we, we ask about other experiences of money, really early memories and when we start to string them together, we can see, is there, is there any common theme there? And you know, if these were chapters of a book, what might the title be? And right away, we can see what our money story is, or some people call it a money script. And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind, because it's not just about the money, but it's about all these really important human needs that money becomes a symbol of. So it's not just pounds and pence. For some people, depending on the messaging they picked up, depending on their experiences, money might come to symbolize power or success. Or for someone else, it might symbolize independence and freedom. Or for someone else, it might be love or belonging. And I think it's really important for us to get clear on, you know, what are we associating with money? What, what are we projecting onto it? What needs are we 
hoping it will fulfill. And that's, that's an important starting point because often we haven't, we're not even aware of it. We do it unconsciously. Just anecdotally, that resonates so much. And in my book, I write about my early beliefs forming so much around money. I feel like my self-esteem was very much based on, you know, I, I grew up with a father who's an entrepreneur, so we never had any money. And it was always kind of, well, we may have like even less, we may lose everything. And the, the mm. fear that was so prevalent. And it's interesting because me and my brothers all have this crazy work ethic and we're all kind of similar what's so lovely about it is we can all sit down around the kitchen table and go oh my god we're all so eccentric based on mm-hmm. this terrifying anxiety that we all had growing up that you know Fear there wouldn't be enough there wouldn't be enough and even really small things which I find really interesting about the childlike brain when you look back is my parents would say on on holiday oh you guys can have an ice cream but it can't be more than 20p So immediately as a child, you're like, oh, my God, we can't afford anything more than 20p, Mm -hmm. which is 20 cents. And it's just so interesting how even now all three of us struggle with this ability to understand what money is because it was so ingrained that we had none. So how does that show up for you today? Is that part of your motivation to keep working, bringing in more Well, I think it led into becoming a bit of a work addict. I think Mm -hmm. my coping strategy then turned into you must work harder. And that's why, you know, when I hit burnout and had to learn all this stuff, I suddenly was like, oh, this kind of makes sense that I would burn out with such a fierce belief Mm -hmm. that you're going to be so unsafe if you don't work harder and create economic safety for yourself. And I can't wait to go on to my other questions when it goes in, you know, we talk about money and relationships because, Mm -hmm. you know, I think I stayed single for years of my life because I was like, I can't be in a relationship unless I'm financially secure myself. And obviously that's really difficult to do. So, you know, I spent most of my twenties single based on this like terrifying fear that I wasn't financially stable enough to be in a relationship. I think it's useful. You looking back at your past history, you can see there are things that were were positives. It, it created a really strong work ethic to go out and be independent and create this financial security. But then we we need to update these things. We need to say, okay, that was that was really useful information to take on board. But is it still relevant today? Do I need to work that hard today? Or can I take a look with a fresh pair of eyes of what my actual situation is and notice that I go into autopilot, need to do more, need to work harder, need to bring in more. Maybe that needs a little updating. Maybe that's a bit out of date. And maybe that's not how I want to organize my efforts to make money today in 2022. So interesting. So I guess so mine comes from this like need to be independent, but what are some of the other case studies or common maladaptions people have created from money narratives? Well, need for freedom and independence is a big one, particularly for women. So there's a whole cohort of women who grew up seeing their their mothers and grandmothers who didn't have certain freedoms because Mm -hmm. they didn't have their own money. So particularly for women of a certain generation, that was, uh, it's certainly that was my messaging early on. You need your own money for freedom, for independence. And so that is a big one. Power and success is another one. 
sometimes when people aren't feeling particularly powerful or successful, they keep equating, well, if I get this salary or this bonus, or I'm able to get this house, or, you know, we, we feel like this external goal is going to give us that internal need of feeling powerful or successful. So there's often a link between, you know, power and success and money. But equally, like I said it, um, a bit earlier, sometimes it's belonging, it's love, it's a way of showing affection. And I've certainly worked with clients who feel like they need to be providing for others and sharing with others to get love. So there's all sorts of different things. Sometimes when we're working with clients who might have a bit of a compulsive shopping habit, they start to equate belongings with belonging. And, and we have to say it's not about acquiring more things. More things aren't going to give you that sense of, of belonging, the more fundamental human sense of belonging. So it's just getting really clear. There's loads of them. And every individual has different things, like I said, that they're projecting onto the money. It's, you know, what's your individual one and, and we can work with it. So we've established it has such an impact on our behavior, on our actions, on our decisions. And yet out of a hundred hours of podcasting, this is the first episode I have done about the psychology of money. Why do we kind of leave the subject till last? Mm. And it is a taboo. I think it's important to say that at the outset, it's one of the big three, right? With death, sex, and money, they talk about. And in my experience, people are way more um, open about death and sex than they are about money. And the kind of published research can back this up, that money is the, the least favorite thing to talk about. So why is that? And I think all of us, no matter where our starting point is, have a somewhat to very complicated relationship with money. And it's this pervasive sense of not enough, which cues shame. And shame's really difficult to acknowledge, let alone to talk about. And then there's there's other reasons, like in the culture, it's, you know, there's historically we learn it's not done, it's not polite, it's looked down upon, it's a bit gauche. So there's kind of cultural norms that are in the process of updating. Um, and then I hear a lot as well. I just don't understand money. I'm not good with money. I don't understand the language of money. And so there is some real work to be done around having these conversations so that people get more comfortable with it, improving education in the schools and in the homes. So, so there's some kind of logistical and practical considerations too. But more and more I see it keeps coming back to the psychology and it keeps coming back to these feelings of, of not enough. Again, not just about the bank balance, but what it represents to us. Before we get back to the conversation, I want to tell you about something I feel really passionate about, and that's more women investing their money better. It's an honor to be partnering with Female Invest on today's podcast, because one of my biggest stress points in life is money, and we rarely confront that. To help reduce your money stress and set you up to financially win, Female Invest have created a membership to help you learn and meet experts. With a Female Invest membership, you have access to world-leading masterclasses, weekly magazines, live weekly webinars, and Q&A sessions to speak to other women about money and investing. I want 2022 to be your year that you get your money smart. So I can't quite believe the discount Female Invest have given you guys, my not perfect listeners. They are offering 40% off an annual membership when you use the code NOTPERFECT, all one word. 
The offer expires on the 1st of April 2022, so head to femaleinvest.co.uk today to make sure you take advantage of this fantastic offer. So I always have this discussion with my mother about how money in relation to contribution and this idea mm-hmm. that people favor different jobs over Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Others based on the paycheck, but yet the service they're providing is of equal contribution mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. emotional labor where you've had, you know, people who identify as women feel depleted because the labor that they have historically provided hasn't had. It's not valued. Yeah, not valued. It's hard to calculate, hard to measure and, and largely, you know, goes invisible. And so you have people working away and feeling like, like it's not valued. I think part of that is as a culture, we haven't had a language around value and worth other than the creation of material wealth, right? And that is changing. That's the good news that has been, I think, going on in the 2000s. I certainly have seen that since the financial crisis. I've certainly seen that kind of turbocharged under COVID, you know, when we start thinking about broader values. Can we can we broaden out our definitions of success and broaden out our definitions of of value beyond the financial, because you're absolutely right. A lot of times we we focus on the money because we can quantify it, we can calculate it. And as a culture, we've been quite fixated on it. But again, I'm quite optimistic that it these things take a long time to change, right? But but increasingly we are thinking more about valuing other services and goods and equally lobbying and, and standing up for better pay in these Mm. industries. Because again, just because we're doing good work doesn't mean we shouldn't expect to be paid for it. And so again, that comes back to that split. Historically, in a lot of the caring industries or the arts, similarly, there's been this, you know, we, we shouldn't talk about money. And absolutely we need to be advocating for people working in these industries to be to be paid so that they can take care of themselves and their families and so that they're in good health so that they can care for others. <laughs> you want your, your care workers to be taking care of themselves too, and, and they need money to do that. Absolutely. And I guess this then kind of leads into like, what is money? Is it energy? Is it a tool for transaction? And mm-hmm. I know you've done a lot of work on the kind of, I guess, like the history of money, but how mm-hmm. do you answer that? Like, what is money? 
Well, it's monies, first of all. There's not one. I mean, if we want to just be literal, it's a medium of exchange, right? But as I think of, I risk repeating myself, it, it means different things to different people. And so if we just get fixated on the money itself, we lose these bigger meanings that, that people put onto it. And so again, it's, it's what does money mean to the individuals? And this is particularly interesting when I do couple work, right? And people have, the couple will be having an argument about, say, spend on a, on a vacation. And they're arguing just about the money. But when we go into their individual money stories and what money means to each of them, we can see, okay, on the one hand, we have one of the couple who money is about love and enjoyment and celebration. And the other one, it's about security and safety. So the one who's about security and safety is saying, don't ask me to spend all this money on a vacation. You're asking me to spend my safety and you know risk my safety and security. And the other one saying, but don't take away this enjoyment and this love and this connection. And, and so it's really interesting when we can see the different definitions that each in the couple is, is projecting onto the money. So monies is, I guess, my, my answer to that question. <laughs> Honestly, that answer kind of blew my mind because being honest, I had the exact same argument and neither of us had the language to be able to have that conversation and to provide that understanding for one another. So as a consequence, both of us just kind of thought to each other, the other one was ludicrous. So what is your guidance and advice for couples and how money doesn't need to ruin a relationship but can support one? Well, the first thing is to talk about it early and often. I mean, from the very beginning, because it's, it's hard. But a lot of couples come for, say, premarital counseling. And it's great that we can talk about it then before these big outlays on things like houses or children or school fees mm. or whatever have to take place. So, so talking about it early and often. Too often people get pigeonholed and either I'm the spender and you're the saver or, or they use even... <laughs> Worst words, you know, you're the miser and you're reckless with the money, you know, so let's not do this to ourselves, right? Let's just recognize that we have different conditions. Some of us are a little bit more risk averse than others. Um, and can we be respectful of each other's kind of conditioning and risk tolerance and all the rest, but not turn each other into caricatures of, of one or the other? I definitely recommend money dates, by the way. So recognizing that this can be a difficult topic. Can we set aside some time to say, Let's talk about what our money goals are, what a good life looks like, what are we going to need to provide for that good life together? What are the essentials? What are the negotiables? And, and can we do so in a, in a way that's open and curious rather than kind of closed and, and critical? We can learn so much about another person by the way they spend their money. It's, it's kind of a vote of their values, right? What they choose to spend money on says a lot about about the individual what are some practical ways to have conversations that are open and curious and don't leap to defending one's personal view well first I think it's going back to the history so you understand how your partner developed these views and so mm. learning well, what we did earlier so tell me what was it like growing up in your house I mean how did your parents spend money? How did they earn money? What did you associate money with? Was it easy to come by? Was it hard to come by? Is there anything in your family history? You know, the families where there's been, um, for instance, a significant about, amount of money that was lost, 
in maybe a, a business that went under or somehow the family wealth was it's no more, that's a real trauma, right? And so if that's in the family history, can we understand about that? Because we might be far more empathetic to our partner about them being a bit more cautious if that's in their family history. And so it's just really understanding how he or she developed um, the, the ideas and, and relationship with money that they have. That's a starting point, not going straight to what's our budget for this month? What do you want to spend on this? Like, I, I think, again, I'm, I'm sounding like a broken record and a little bit speaking my own book here, but starting with the psychology, starting with the emotions, what we put onto money. And then once we have a better understanding of our the values that um, that are important to us, then we can talk about how we can use money to help us live those values. And we can get into the realm of, I, I know that's important to you, so we'll spend some money on that. This is important to me. And even be a little bit more understanding if you know our, our partner handles things differently, but what we can say, I understand why they do. So, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but there feels to me like kind of two conversations happening around money in terms of one, looking at the psychology when you're in a relaxed state and then there is mm -hmm. the survival mode when really money has become a threat mm. what is your advice when you're in that situation when the luxury of therapy is not there and it is a very pressing very real worry well, so we've talked about the psychology side of things, the history and getting clear on your values, but then we can get into the practicalities, right? And, and get a pen and paper out and just say, let's look at a basic budget together and, and you know, do a back of the envelope. This is my budget. This is your budget. This is our budget. People do it differently, by the way. The other thing I'd say to couples is there's no one way to do this. Some people are very joined up and they create a, a kind of household budget. Others keep them, their money more independent. So there's that's another question to have. How are we going to pool and allocate our joint resources? So that's pretty, pretty important to discuss up front. Another thing is just, which we can get a lot of information from is, is printing out bank statements from the last few months, right? And just seeing in black and white, where is it going to? And, and seeing, okay, does that align with the way we want to be living our lives? And sometimes where it's very confirmatory and we say, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm spending an awful lot on this, but this matters a lot to me. And sometimes we're shocked and amazed how much spending goes on things that really don't matter to us very much. And so that's very useful information because that's almost savings because we can, can start reallocating some of that money. Another thing is there's this um, phrase in personal finance to pay yourself first. And that's really just saying like, take a look at, your needs, which are setting a bit aside for emergencies, setting a bit aside for the future and, and attending to high interest debt and, and take care of those things up front before we start looking at disposable income, what we have to play with for the rest of, of the month. Because if we leave them to later, they end up getting left indefinitely. So this idea of let's attend to what we need to attend to, which is addressing debt that we need to pay down and, and setting stuff aside for the future, if at all possible. I really love that nuance and pay yourself first, because mm. often I think people aren't presented it in that way. And it leads me on to kind of, and you touched upon this, money being so closely related to self-esteem. And mm. this moves into the conversation of, 
you know, especially if you're a freelancer or you are asking for a pay rise, this idea of money and self-worth can really be a block for people asking for what they deserve. Absolutely. And with self-employed, with freelancers, these are the conversations I'm having all the time because it is about valuing yourself and asking for what you think you're worth. And, and those are difficult conversations to have. And so we, I do work with clients on that and, and, and point out where they're, sometimes we don't even realize where we're undervaluing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so to get really clear how much free work we're doing or how much we're agreeing to that is not even going to pay for a coffee really. Um, and so it, to make that link between self-worth and you know fees that you're you're asking of clients, I think is an important one to get really conscious on and to really get clear where you're undervaluing yourself because every time you're overextending yourself, you're sending yourself a message, I'm not worth it, right? Do you want to keep sending yourself that message every time? And it is difficult to ask for clients to pay. And it is these are difficult negotiations, but how do we practice with them either with uh, in the therapy room is one thing, but here I'd recommend getting a money buddy, right? So someone who you're saying, actually, I'm uncomfortable talking about money. You're uncomfortable talking about money. We're both clear. We want to get more comfortable and we want to learn, you know, take a bit more control of our financial futures. Can we, can we practice together? Can we share resources? Can we ask each other the stupid questions, things we don't understand about money? Having a money buddy is a great way to say, we're both focused on this. We both care about this. Can we come together and and be accountable to each other? And, you know, if you said your money buddy, hey, why did you agree to that knockdown rate when you were just saying that actually you can't even cover your your rent this month? So, you know, we we can hold each other accountable to the the things that we we say we want to do in regards to taking better care of our financial health. Gosh, I love that. A money buddy. That's such a brilliant idea. So you have this excellent course as well. And you uh, look at economic theory versus psychological reality. What Mm -hmm. is that debate? Well, it's just kind of looking at the history of economic man and a lot of economics is based on this. So economic man is pretty much a caricature. If you imagine a stick figure with kind of nature at his feet and money in his hand and all ego and self-interest in his heart and this computer in his head. And, and that's literally a caricature, but a lot of economic theory is, is based on you know, rational thinking economic man. And then I broaden it out and say, look, the world expanded beyond that and the world of behavioral finance is, is what they call it, which is really just psychology. And what is that contributed to the field of, of looking at economics and finance? And that's the world of, of our emotions and our needs. And, and it's actually more realistic because it's, it's looking at the whole well-rounded individual and not assuming that the individual is this very two-dimensional caricature that is all rational thinking, rational thought, assuming that Look, if, if it just came down to rational thought, we, we know what we need to do, save a little more, do a little of this, but we don't do it, right? Mm. Something gets in the way and it's these pesky emotions of ours. And how do we you know, create an acknowledgement that we're not as, as rational as we think and, and then learn to work with some of these emotions, look at our triggers, look at how we manage those triggers, look at a, a routine in terms of how do we create some space so that we stay focused on cultivating our internal values and see what matters to us rather than getting distracted again by these 
external motivators and what are some practices we can put in place for that. So these are all things that we, um, we spend time on in, in the workshop. So what does financial well-being look like? Well, when you ask people that, the most common answer given is, um, is the absence of stress. That's understandable. If it's the number one source of stress, the absence of it leads to well-being, right? Unfortunately, that doesn't tell us much about the conditions that allow for the absence of stress. So for me, what are those conditions? I'll mention a few things. One is awareness. So I know what I have and I know where I'm going. And it sounds pretty basic, but when we get nervous or fearful about money, there's a tendency for the bank statements to pile up or just not to check on the app. And so a lot of people, surely because they're scared or, or anxious about it, don't really know what they have or where they're going. So starts with awareness. The next is security. So a sense of, I have enough to cover uh, my needs. And the third is, is agency. So I have a sense that I have some freedom. I have some control. I have some choice around how I go about earning money and spending money. And for me, if those things are present, then they should lead to the absence of stress. But I'd, I'd go one step even further and say the holy grail we're trying to get to is a sense of enough. I have enough. And that's quite a radical statement. And it's almost countercultural. <laughs> but for me, what we're trying to get to with financial well-being is the sense that I have enough. Gosh, that has given me shivers because I think that it's so easy in this world. I look at all these like wellness cliches that get thrown around and this word manifesting comes up Mm -hmm. an awful lot. And often it's around, you know, I want to manifest this in my bank account. And I think to myself, is this a healthier way for us to look at money or is it just, again, reiterating in a different form, maybe in a prettier form, this idea that we're not enough, but we need more? Well, I'm not anti-manifesting. I don't want to be down on that, except if it turns to avoidance of taking action. We have to have intentions and actions. The world provides for those who are actively engaged in it and keeping their energy flowing and moving in the direction they want to be going in, right? So sometimes manifesting for me can almost check out of of my personal responsibility and agency. And and why would we want to do that? Why would we want to give away our power? Me, again, back to that healthy relationship with money, agency is important. The sense that I have choices and and freedoms and the ability to make money. (laughs) That's really interesting. What do you mean by giving up our power? Sometimes I've worked with some clients who I have the intention, I have the belief, I'm I'm manifesting a mindset of abundance, but then they're not doing anything about it, right? (laughs) And I'm saying, okay, I'm sitting here and I'm like, I'm with you. I want that abundance for you too. I feel it too. There's no reason why you shouldn't have money coming your way. What are you doing to help it? (laughs) And so it's my job to be a little bit challenging to point out if we're not actively engaged and if we're using manifesting as a way to to avoid taking responsibility yeah that makes complete and utter sense 
Thank you so much, Kelly. And what's so excellent is that you work in a multitude of ways, obviously, mm-hmm. but also this course. So where can people find you? I would love to hear more about the course if people sure. are interested. Yeah. So online, the website, the collective I'm a part of is Examined Life. So that's examinelife.co.uk. And there on our events, there'll be dates for upcoming workshops. We're just getting those together for 2022. On Instagram, it's Examine Life Therapy. So those are the best places to look, primarily the website. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been really enlightening and I think it's been very thought-provoking. So I'm going to go away and really consider all of these ways that uh, we can move towards greater financial well-being. Thanks for having me, Poppy. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.